0: The presenting sponsor for Ego Check with the IDM is RPG Research. RPG Research is a 501c3 research and human services nonprofit, 100% volunteer run organization. They openly share and work with individuals and organizations from many areas of interest with the overall goal of improving the human condition through cooperative, experiential learning programs using music and games. You can find out more information about RPG research at rpgresearch.com. Once again, that's rpgresearch.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Ego Check with the IDM. I am your host, Michael Mallon, and this week I am thrilled to have Allison Spence here on the show with me. She is the Senior Marketing Communications Manager for Thompson Coburn, and she is going to get into what that exactly means. I'm excited to hear about that. And full disclaimer I am married to Allison's cousin, Emily. Emily is my wife, and Allison was at our wedding. Almost exactly 15 years ago. So, Allison, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, and congratulations again on your anniversary, Michael.
0: I know. We were just talking before we recorded that we were all babies back then. We were just all children.
1: But but I said that, you know, we there is a spark of us that still exists. It was it was captured in your wedding video and it still exists in us somewhere. Right.
0: It's it's almost feels like a parallel universe at this point in time. (laughs) So I'm excited to have you on the show because I think there's quite a bit of overlap in some of the stuff that we think about and work on. And it also furthers my goal of maybe just interviewing all of my wife's cousins at some point in time. As uh, Aaron Retka was on the show last year, and if you haven't heard that episode, he's uh, one of the editors for Geeks Who Drink, uh, the pub quiz organization, which it was a really fascinating interview to hear how that gets made. And you are in marketing communications for Thomas Coburn, which explain to folks what that is.
1: Sure. So uh, the firm is called Thompson Coburn LLP. And um, we're, um, we call it an AM law 200 firm. The American lawyer does a list of the 200 largest law firms. And so we're kind of right in the mix there, usually around 160 is our spot. So um, we're a corporate firm. We have 380 attorneys uh, in five offices across the country. So I'm a member of our marketing team and um, mostly focusing on internal and external communications. I touch all parts of our website. We have about 12 blogs at any given time, and we've really sold our lawyers on this writing and this digital content thing, and it's just kind of this train that just keeps going and going, so I'm kind of maneuvering that train and then I'll work on our social media accounts as well.
0: Wonderful, and you are a graduate of Drake University in Iowa, so shout out to Iowa. I also went to Iowa State, and you are in a journalist position for, for several years,
1: Yes. Yes. So my degree was in journalism. And then I came to St. Louis for my first job out of college, which was at a legal newspaper. It was called Missouri Lawyers Weekly. It still exists. And uh, it was the statewide legal newspaper. So I started out in kind of a very humble courts beat where I was covering county and city courts and schlepping it to the courthouse every day and kind of hanging around in the halls, hoping to sniff out a story or two. And uh, it was really fun. I I miss journalism on on many levels. It was such a fun and noble pursuit, I think we could say. But unfortunately, the the money is not there, surprisingly surprisingly or unsurprisingly.
0: And you were kind enough to send some of the articles that you worked on back as early as 2007, some others from, from 2011 and so just on some of the some of the bigger stories that that you worked on, and you really got to interview and d- dive into a lot of tragic, fascinating, sad, interesting stories.
1: Yeah, that paper was really amazing for giving me pretty much total free reign to write whatever story I wanted to, or try to write it, to at least go after it. So I traveled across the state. I was in Kansas City and Springfield, and in Jefferson City, our weird little capital. And um, just had the ability to talk to a lot of people. And it was an interesting audience because on one level, it is very insular. Um, You know, it was for the legal community um, about the lawyers and the judges and that sort of small subset of the entire state. But on the other hand, as you probably saw from some of the stories that I sent you, I mean, humanity is the same no matter what or where your community is. So you know, my whole goal with writing a story, even if it was about one weird little attorney who got disbarred for saying terrible things about judges in his circuit, that you could still understand it or sort of get the context of it and understand why this guy's story was so interesting.
0: There's a, a, a humanness factor, I think, to a lot of the, lot of the stories that, that you wrote about. And we've discussed at family gatherings and even preparing for this podcast about some of the overlap between our two professions or between journalism and psychology even in some ways. So, you know, my role in working with someone in a kind of a patient-client relationship, building a relationship, building some trust, uh, exploring some factors that are influencing their life. And I would think as a journalist, you're doing much of the same thing. And you pointed out to me, whereas I have to keep things confidential, your goal is to make things public, <laughs> which is a kind of interesting way of looking at it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I asking potentially as intimate questions as, as you may be asking a patient or, you know, just getting to the origin of people's origin stories. I'm sure you spend so much time with that, with your patients. And if I had the time and often I did with these sort of long-term enterprise reporting stories, that's where I always wanted to go. Like, who is this person? Why are you doing what you're doing? <laughs> you know, what makes you interesting? And so I would ask them intimate questions like that. But on the other hand, I needed to get them on the record. Like, You know, I needed to convince them that that story was noteworthy enough, newsworthy enough to tell other people and for them to be okay with that. And I didn't do a whole lot. I didn't. I was talking with my mom about this recently because she had written or read the story about um, one of the Theranos books that's out right now about Elizabeth Holmes and. You know, this reporter who had written the book had, you know, gone off the record and gone on background with people and had anonymous sources. And I I never really waded into that territory necessarily, because in journalism school, they just teach you. It's just such a fine line between, you know, going anonymous and how much can your readers really trust you if you're not telling them where you got this information. So I didn't go into that area. So it did involve me building trust fairly quickly with people. And I think a lot of what went into that and what helped me be successful in that role was the emotional intelligence. I don't know how often you've talked about that on on your podcast here, Michael, but uh, just emotional intelligence and where that comes from and can it be taught.
0: for, For folks who maybe aren't familiar with that term, what does that mean to you?
1: To me, I sort of think of it as just this innate thing of being able to read someone pretty quickly right off the bat like just getting a read on them coming down or up to their level. You know, oftentimes, even in my work today, I'm most successful when I immediately get on someone's level. If they're like a low energy attorney and they're very chill, or if they're a little more excited, like you can see, even in the range of my voice, I can kind of jump up and down to match where they are. And it's the mirroring thing, right? Like people are most comfortable when they're talking with people that are like them. So the quicker you can get on their level And it's the whole thing like mirroring body language, even crossing your legs when they cross your legs, leaning back when they lean back. It just makes someone feel comfortable and just kind of breaks down those barriers of differences so that you can get the information you need from that
0: person. And there might be folks listening right now who are just like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And I don't mean that in a bad way. I think for some people, just think of it as a spectrum. There's folks who have... A high level of emotional intelligence, maybe another way to think about it as psychologically minded, where you pay attention to these things, this empathy, you're just aware of how other people are behaving, why they might be behaving that way, what's going on. And there's other folks who are maybe lower on that, where they're just more in their own space, and not really too aware of what everyone else is doing around them. And I think there's a lot of ways for us to be even more insular now with social media and technology. And it's like, we're outreaching to people, but not really the people in front of us. So that emotional intelligence is something that I think is definitely important.
1: Yeah. And I, I feel for people, you know, people who aren't as bothered by other people's emotions, I sort of envy them many at times. And maybe you feel the same way where, you know, I have a level of discomfort if people are uncomfortable, like, I've been to some improv shows that have been very uncomfortable for me, where I've been physically ill at the sight of someone struggling and can't turn that off in my brain. I just feel for them on that level. It's very distracting.
0: Well, and it's come up with with some different guests in the past, maybe not under this exact language, but a lot of what I've talked about in the past is playing games like Dungeons & Dragons, which is a role-playing game where you play in person, and it's, I always describe it, it's more or less a group of people sitting around a table, for the most part, talking to each other. And you make a game out of it, and there's some rules. A lot of it's improv, a lot of it's just working off each other. And so if you do have a group where one or more people don't have that those skills of being able to read people or knowing, like, hey, maybe I shouldn't do X, Y, or Z, or... This person seems to enjoy when I do this, so I'll do it more. Like, if you don't have that as much, it can create some difficulties. It's same way in a work group, same way in a gaming group, same way on a sports team. I think these skills are transferable.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's nice. I mean, if you do have a little EQ or whatever, whatever they call emotional intelligence, you can serve as, like, a little bit of a social glue, a little bit of a connector to kind of build bridges between people who maybe at different levels, because everyone has a strength and a skill, and, you know, if you have that emotional intelligence, you can draw that out, right, and sort of hold someone else into the spotlight and make them feel good. Let, let a little light shine on them for whatever is their strength.
0: And so one of the stories I really enjoyed, because it, it in some ways hit close to home, was you profiled a, I think it's the attorney general who played Hurley or Hurling. Hurley is the name of the stick
1: yes oh god you're gonna quiz me on the name of the sport
0: no no no. So it's hur- <laughs> I, It's definitely hurling i have it here hurling
1: hurling yes
0: hurling because because i in the past have played curling which it's amazing how the cultures are quite similar where i think it's with this with a lot of sports like rugby or, or hurling which if you don't know what hurling is just youtube some videos it's big in big in ireland uh, it's kind of a little bit like lacrosse and field hockey and other things mixed in. But it's more or less a way for a group of people to get together, bond, have a few drinks, and run around. <laughs> which, which it's kind of the same thing with curling, although we're not running around. We're s- sort of sliding around on ice. Um, but just reading the story and how you profiled the, the lawyer involved, just kind of the nuance, the details of that culture like that culture exists in a lot of different places under a lot of different names. Like it happened to be hurling with this, but it's curling in Minnesota and other places and it's it's other sports, other activities. I, I just thought it was interesting that there's again, there's overlap. There's a humanness to it that you can generalize to other facets of life.
1: Yeah, you know, the, the story is about hurling ostensibly because we've had these cool pictures and I'm on the field. It was this miserable rainy day, like, yeah. it was so muddy and gross if that didn't come across in the story. And so I'm just watching this guy. I thought like, maybe well, you were, like,
0: subtweeting your editor, like, I can't believe you sent me out here on this assignment.
1: <laughs> maybe there was an ulterior motive, but it was fun, actually, because, you know— kind of the worst your situation is as a reporter if there's conflict if it's uncomfortable I mean those that's just great fodder right to pull out those details and describe the miserable scene but you know then you pull back that's sort of the focus of the story and then you pull back and it's about this guy and he grew up Um, like all over the world. He might've been a military brat. I can't remember, but um, that hurling was this connection he had to his childhood and he kind of rediscovered it and is now on the field running around with these younger guys. So that was kind of one of just the fun little like pastime hobbies type stories we did about attorneys. But, you know, I sort of treated it like a mini, like a little new journalism exercise where I'm on the field and describing it. And then also getting across just the logistics of hurling and how it works and how you hold the The Hurley, is that what you're remembering? That's the name of the stick, right?
0: I think, yes, that is the name of the the stick. (laughs) So, being kind of in depth with the communications piece, how did that lead to a position at Thompson Coburn LLP?
1: Right. So, I was working for the legal newspaper and Thompson Coburn was a firm that I reported about now and again, you know, not in any super critical way. I don't remember, but, you know, writing about this or that or interviewing their chairman and had been in contact with them enough where one of their marketing folks was like, hey, you should jump the fence and come over and be on our side. And then I just loved it right away because the way I described it is it's exercising all these different muscles that I didn't really know that I had. Like in journalism, every day the story might be different, but the process was basically the same, like finding the sources, doing the interviews, writing the piece, working on photos maybe paper goes to bed, you're done. You know, you go to the next story. Whereas immediately in my new role, I was, you know, working on people's bios, working on internal news, doing video product, doing multimedia, using all these parts of my brain that, yeah, might be, you know, spinning, putting a spin on things, having a point of view, um, working with reporters from the opposite side. But I think it's just really strengthened me as a communicator on all levels. And, you know, I have three hundred and eighty attorneys. I have three hundred and eighty different bosses on any given day. So the variety never ceases for sure.
0: That sounds like a lot of hats to wear.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it is. And it's you know, my focus has changed here and there. Um, over the year, you know, I've been there almost eight years now. So my focus has shifted here and there a little bit. And I now have someone working um, under me who is mostly working with the website content and our blogs and some of the internal communications. So I can kind of pull myself up and work on sort of broader, kind of more senior level type communications projects. So that's been a nice shift.
0: Well, and this gets into one of the things I was, you know, really interested in talking with you about, because you have a unique perspective on, on, I think, topics that relate to folks who tune into this podcast about just the gaming world. And we were were talking earlier, and I was just describing some of the recent events in, in gaming about how everyone has an audience. And everyone, whether it's through Instagram or Twitter or Twitch or a Patreon account or running a Kickstarter, that there's any number of ways to to build an audience, and then to draw resources from that audience, including funding. And there's good ways to do that and not so great ways to do that. And it sounds like what you're doing is certainly different from what those people are trying to accomplish. And at the same time, it seems like there's some overlap where how do you get people's attention? How do you create a piece of content, whether it's a bio about a new hire or or something, uh, a piece of video profiling an important development in the organization, how do you do that well? How do you break into the torrent of never-ending content that's being produced by major networks, individual bloggers, individual podcasters like myself, other people? I, it, it seems so intimidating if if that was my sole job. <laughs> so, I guess I'm wondering, how do you do it?
1: Yeah, it's hard. Like if everyone can have an audience, does anyone have an audience? That's yeah. kind of that question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, More it's put. yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, the, the thing that's really interesting to me right now is. You know, the, the the personal brand component where I think the people who break through and are really successful are people who are out there as individuals. I mean, you know, I market my attorneys as individuals, but in large part, we're sort of selling our firm as, you know, this this host of services that we can offer a corporation or you know, a high net worth individual, whatever it might be, we're sort of like, here's all of us look at everything we can do for you. That's a lot of different messages to get across. Whereas if you're a person, if you're a gamer if you know, if you're a psychologist doing particular research, you you are your own brand in a sense. And you do see people capitalizing on that a lot. And it helps if you have a really great story behind you. I mean, it kind of all comes back to stories for me. The more compelling your your origin story or why you're doing this or what's pushing you to do it, I think that's what gets eyes on any level. And then repetition is part of it, of course, where I I feel for these people that are just like kind of slaves to their social channels and (laughs) their followers are giving them are hassling them if they don't have so many posts per day. Like it's just kind of this never ending cycle, particularly if you're like an influencer or something, someone who's making their living just being themselves. Essentially, it's kind of a fascinating place. And the other thing that really stands out to me is the visual component, how that is just so necessary. Like, you know, since Instagram came on the scene, almost every social channel has sort of aped the the visuals of that, where we, you know, we expect photo, we expect video content, we expect to see you and hear your voice and, you know, for it to be really compelling or have really funny graphics applied onto it. And So there's a lot of opportunity there. But then again, it's just another level of production where now you can't just be a person with a camera, a camera phone. You're expecting like professional quality production on top of it.
0: Yeah, it reminds me, I don't know, because we moved from Texas back to Minnesota in like 2012. And I think it was soon thereafter, there was a new high rise going up on the University of Minnesota campus, like just off campus. And I was driving through there. And there was a sign, big sign on the front window before anyone moved in. It was like trying to advertise like, hey, we're, we're open. Come on in. And one of the biggest fonts they had was Instagrammable views. <laughs> and this is back like 2013, 2014. And I, I'm pretty sure it's around that time, maybe a year or so later. But I remember driving by it and thinking, well, that's just the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> And, of course, what did I do? I, like, stopped. I took a picture of it. I was like, oh, I have to tell people about this because, again, it's like I have an audience and I think this is funny. And they were so ahead of the curve of, like, yes, that's what – I guess my wife was just sharing a story with me that, like, tourist attractions are having all these problems because everyone wants, like, the same perfect Instagram photo and it's just slowing things up. I think somebody died on Everest in a way because of this, because oh. there's such a backup and people want to take pictures up top. And it's obviously a life or death situation up there. And there's hundreds of people trying to get up Everest. And that it's side note. But, yeah, it seems like there's it's such a change in culture that seems like it's happened quickly. And you're younger than me, certainly, by but, but quite a bit. What's it been like for you? Because you've more grown up with it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, I saw an article last year that described my generation as the Oregon Trail generation. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know if you were on the maybe the tail end of that, but, um, you know, we had computers. We started getting computers like in grade school where you could play Oregon Trail on it. Um, And then we got the Internet in high school ish but then we didn't get social media until college. So we're sort of like the last generation that had maybe like a quasi-protected childhood where we had internet, we had AOL and potentially weird things happening in chat rooms, but we weren't like looking at each other's faces all day long in class or out of class and judging each other and double tapping. So that's kind of where I fall a little bit. So, you know, social media came on the scene for me in college. And then again, it's interesting that you know, my whole business life and career life got kind of wrapped up in that fairly quickly too.
0: So to getting back to some of the points you were making, you had, you had talked about kind of the importance of an origin story. You know, why, why are you doing what you're doing? And I think if your origin story is, well, I just want to get attention that that probably doesn't have a lot of legs, at least it wouldn't seem to have a lot of legs. Um, you mentioned the repetition piece and the, the visual component what works best for you in in your role? I imagine you've tried different ideas. Some have probably worked pretty well. Some maybe not so well. What has been kind of the best success you've been really happy with?
1: When I think about it, recently we've had a um, success with video, and particularly because you know we're on all social channels at this point. Basically, everything except Snapchat, almost, um, which is kind of advanced as far as a corporate law firm is concerned. You don't see that many of us on Instagram and um, more of us on Twitter now, but, you know, we're also operating in like a LinkedIn space, which is just you know a very professional or at least professional steaming social network um, where it can be, a, it's a little more black and white. It's a little dull, you know, it's a little bit just people following each other, but, you know, I've seen marketing surveys again and again that like the corporate world business folks are on this channel and so if you are serving up video content that's, that's visual, that's colorful, that has a point to it, is short, you know, very snackable, um, you get noticed there. And we've got really great pickup on LinkedIn and places like that. And we've also just started doing some video, video with, like, words on top of it. Um, Which you see, you know, I sort of think of it like I'm often looking at social media like at 530 in the morning before my kids are jumping in my bed. And (laughs) I I do I call myself like a silent scroller, right, where I'm just like going through Facebook or something. And I will stop on the videos that have text across it because I can't listen to the sound of this. But if it's like a Seth Meyers, you know, monologue on Trump and it has words on it, I'll just pause right there and I'll like read slash watch the entire thing. So in the same vein, you know, we've had a lot of success with videos that are just telling short stories with words and and images kind of served up to folks.
0: Yeah. And that's something that I want to do more often, because now I think there's programs and there's ways to take a podcast, which is a big ask. You want you're asking someone to download that and then to listen to it. Some podcasts are short, some are long, but it's a time commitment. And now there are these things where you can chop it up into 30-minute segments or whatever, and there'll be a closed captioning to it. So kind of like you said, you wouldn't even have to listen to it, but you could read along <laughs> in these little segments. And if you're interested, oh, maybe I'll click on this and listen to more. Um, but doing that takes time. And like having the time, the resources to, to make that kind of content is great, It becomes, I think, if it's more of a hobby or a side thing that you're doing, it's, well, where do I put my time and effort into if this is something I want to kind of take seriously and grow versus just taking care of your own (laughs) self-health and not burning out?
1: I know. I think, and again, I'm in a marketing department and we have like you know, a whole team of really fantastic designers. So they're the ones, you know, I may be coming up with the script for the video, but then I hand it over to them. And like, we all theoretically do it on working hours. So I really feel for people who, again, are trying to do the the personal brand, the influencer lifestyle. And, you know, you think it's great to quit your job and just like do it for the gram all day long and make money off it. But again, I think the time commitment would be extraordinary
0: yeah i need i need minions what (laughs) what have been some things over the years that have not worked so well that were surprising in terms of trying to reach people trying to get a message out that you thought was kind of a surefire way to make a point make something happen and it maybe fizzled for one reason or another
1: Hmm, that's such a good question, Michael. I'm, I'm I'm with you on an interviewer level. That's that's a really good interviewer trick to ask people about their successes, but of, about the challenges as well. Um, I think of some things. You know, it's it's one thing if you have a story and you're just kind of putting it out. You know, like here's a success story, or here's something cool we did for a client, and you just sort of tell that story and be done. And it's a little bit harder when you're trying to drive people toward an action. You know, whether it's to come to this, you know, breakfast seminar we're doing on the cannabis industry in Missouri, which is a practice group that's kind of growing for us right now, or getting them to sign up, you know, for a white paper. Like we might, quote unquote, hide a white paper behind like not a paywall, but it's like a form. So people have to give us their information to get really good information. And that's, you know, sort of this marketing tactic of kind of making a sales funnel and having all these unknown people who might be glancing at our content give us their information and become known to us. And then maybe you want to do something with those people who become known, like invite them to a webinar or an in-person seminar, whatever it might be. And that's harder. That's that's a little bit harder to drive people to to action. We've talked about this a little bit, like again with all the messages that are out there, how do you make something sticky? or get people to really connect with it and do something. And we try to combat that a little bit or address that by just trying to be as niche and specific as we can with whatever the message is, whatever the event is. You know, if, if you're only speaking, if you're speaking to the right audience, it should be easier because whatever you're telling them should be relevant to them. You know, it's when someone gets a, an email or something about, you know, Oh, cannabis, you know, I'm, a real estate attorney in Los Angeles, why do I care about cannabis in Missouri? Unsubscribe. Something like that. We never want to get those messages or those bounces. And But it's because you were saying the wrong thing to the wrong audience. So, you know, I have this analogy. I'm like a big stand-up comedy nerd. And so I sort of have this presentation I give within our firm where I describe it as like a comedian killing it their first night out, right? When a joke kills right. when you tell the right joke to the right audience and people just die laughing because it was the perfect moment and the perfect audience. And while there's no such thing as perfect per se in marketing, the more specific you are and you're talking to the right people, the more successful your message or your final action or call to action will be.
0: So maybe getting into the weeds a little bit, I wonder if, because from that, I take you have to tailor your message to your audience, which certainly makes sense. And I wonder, as an organization that sounds quite prominent and successful, what are the guidelines in terms of consistency or making sure you're not saying one thing to one group and something completely different to another group where they create a little bit of tension?
1: No, I mean, we think about our brand a lot in whatever our message is, because while we may have specific messages to specific audiences, it has to be the Thompson Coburn brand. It has to be us across the board. And um, the same goes for all of our visuals. Like, you know, you could grab a brochure from one practice group and a social media ad that I did for another and lay them at a PowerPoint that, some attorneys giving for a presentation in New York, you should be able to lay them side by side and they should be in the same design family. Like we're very careful about that. That gets a little bit different when you have kind of like cowboy and cowgirl attorneys who want to go off in their own direction. And we're of some that have wanna be very creative and stretch our brand to whatever possible limit but we're pretty strong about reeling them kind of back in and saying, you know, we want to help you achieve your goal, but we, but we have to do it in the Thompson Coburn way. And so, you know, our visuals are a part, a part of that family. We have a really strong brand guidelines. And then one thing that's been cool about my role is I've kind of helped us serve as the one voice, the one voice of Thompson Coburn. So that, you know, if you read any of our social posts across any of our messages. If you read our internal news, our external news, it should sound like it's coming from the same organization. So I'm not like militant about it. And, you know, more and more my staff and the folks working with my on my team are kind of growing. So I have more people writing, but I'm usually always reviewing it or touching that content in some way. And I think that helps your ultimate audience too, because you're right that it would be confusing to get different messages or conflicting messages um, from one attorney or another or one group or another. So that's where brand comes in.
0: Well, and you mentioned that you have 380 bosses of sorts. So if you have that many lawyers and trying to do individual things with those people, I imagine there's quite a range and a standard deviation of folks who are independent or, or kind of free thinking and want to do their own thing. And that probably presents some, some challenges at times.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I I don't want to stereotype and I don't know if, you know, in psychology you've done any, you know, personality testing by chosen profession, but lawyers in general are very independent, very critical, very skeptical, very intelligent, which is why it's really great to work with them. But uh, yeah, they have a, a very discerning eye and a strong point of view um, so my job over the last eight years has just been to kind of, again, help them achieve individually what they're trying to do, but to kind of win them over and, and be an influencer kind of for our marketing department and say, you know, look, I understand what you're trying to say and who you're, what you're trying to speak to, but you know, there's a way to do that within our brand so that, you know, the whole firm can get behind whatever you're doing.
0: Well, and to, to go from the journalism side and then to win the trust approval of these folks and continue to advance in that organization, it seems like you're doing a lot right. So congratulations on that.
1: Thanks, thanks. Yeah, that's what we're fighting for every day here.
0: To touch, get back to this idea of stickiness and like what what type of content sticks out there, you know, something that I've mentioned with folks before is the never ending stream of information that's out there. And you even mention it, like when you wake up and before the kids wake up, just kind of scrolling through whatever. And I think our brains are just becoming sort of, you get to the point where you scroll at something, you focus on it for maybe a, a split second or two, and then it's gone. And then it's really gone. It's like uh, almost like it never happened. And I wonder like, if you want to motivate people, not only to consume some information, but to take action to do something whether that's attend a meeting donate to a cause show up to something like what alchemy do you use to make that happen
1: yeah yeah it's a it's a constant thing well it's interesting what you just said about you know being in in bed scrolling things and no i'm not going to necessarily take to heart the first thing that i'm seeing at 5 30 in the morning but so timing is definitely something that's part of it i mean if you go way back to like the early days of email marketing, um, which we still do a lot of, um, it's the inbox is kind of, we call it kind of a sacred space where people don't want you intruding, but at the same time, it's been like the communication, the electronic communication method that we've all just been kind of raised on. And so we're very comfortable communicating and seeing messages there. So, you know, there's this golden hour and golden day of email marketing, which is like Tuesday mornings between, Nine and ten Eastern, let's say, where if you hit people, you're trying to hit people when they've like maybe come into work, maybe they've gone through a few emails, maybe they're just starting to look at their day, and oh, I just got this alert about a corporate and securities law that just came into play. Uh, I know I need to you know talk to my CEO about that, so let me just take a look at this. And, you know, you hopefully hit them at a time that works for them. And it may be a different time depending, again, on, on the geography of the person or their type of work, because, you know, our L.A. office doesn't get cranky until, you know, 9 or 10 a.m. their time. So, again, the more you know about your audience and what you're trying to do, the kind of better timing you can have with those types of messages.
0: Yeah. And I imagine the folks who kind of put out this content for, for a living, like more in like on my end like gaming world whether it's having a twitch stream or throwing up a podcast or you know any of the other numbers of content where they probably they have metrics on when are people most likely to tune in and then if they're smart they likely adjust to well when are people around um so you mentioned email kind of early morning when people are working I wonder what the other high points are for other types of content, whether it's a blog article or, you know, a video that you put together. Have you you noticed any trends in that realm?
1: Well, it's interesting because, you know, when we whatever one piece of content we do that the attorneys write, let's say it's a blog post. Well, that blog post goes up and that could go up, you know, any time of day or night doesn't really matter. And then we sort of send it down what we call the content stream, which is, you know, that same article goes up on the front page of our website. Uh, We're doing various types of social media posts throughout the day on that. There's going to be an email alert component of it. Usually we give it to the attorney for them to share individually on LinkedIn. So, you know, depending on where you are in our audience, you could get hit with some version of this content, you know, one or more times in a day. So that's kind of one piece is packaging the same thing in different ways. And maybe there's like a visual component. Maybe we pull out and make an infographic of something. And then we're sharing that the next day or the day after, or maybe we're following up a week later with, you know, a short video kind of explaining one aspect of this regulation, whatever it might be. So, you know, taking one, one message and finding different ways and then you kind of watch it, you know, and watch, as you said, look at the metrics and see how it performs You know, one thing we've noticed on our site, often we have lawyers kind of hemming and hawing over like their practice pages. They're always talking about their practice pages. Well, we know from the traffic on our site that those are like the most least traffic parts of our site. And their number one place is people's bios because people are looking at people. And then a huge chunk of our traffic comes from people doing a Google search and landing on one of our articles. And then they come onto our sites and then they might take a little journey from there. They'll often click for the attorney's bio from there. We also, at the bottom of all of our pages, we kind of mimicked Amazon a little bit. And we have, a, you may also like, sort of a queue at the bottom that scrolls. Oh, okay. And, you know, we don't have an Amazon-style algorithm, but we have a basic algorithm that feeds into that you may also like. Y-M-A-L, we call it, and people get drawn into that. I don't know if it's just like the personal call-out, like, you, Michael, you may like this article about, you know, business litigation trends in Illinois, <laughs> and people get drawn I into it. I might like that. You might. <laughs> According to our algorithm, you may. So that's been pretty successful, actually, in drawing people further. You know, imagine mentioned sticky. To make a sticky site, you want to keep people drawing people deeper and deeper into your site, you know, so that they just find more things that they like, more people that they like, and just overall come away with an impression like, oh, this is a firm. They do a lot of stuff. Like they know what they're talking about, but they're personable too. Like, you know, these attorneys have nice smiling faces and they look friendly and they're involved in their communities and they do pro bono. And that's kind of the whole aggregate feeling we want you to come away with.
0: So this is perhaps a more uh, challenging question. I wonder. In, in your role, how you've seen things develop over the last eight years, where are things going to be in another eight years? So that would put us around 2027. So what, what what do you think your job looks like at that point in time?
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, the, the first thing that comes to mind for me is not necessarily my job because marketing will kind of adapt to whatever is going on in the market, right? But Um, I think about my attorney stakeholders. I think we have a lot of change happening with just, you know, this old guard kind of moving out and retiring and, in general, even folks after they kind of retire, they, they stay at the firm for a long time. So, you know, we have folks on our floor that are, you know, still some practicing in some regard or still kind of advising, or maybe they're helping, um, a client shift to another person. But, um, There's going to be a lot of change and a lot of younger attorneys coming up. And the same goes for our clients in their companies. I mean, I think you could go up to a 60, 65 year old partner now and say, listen, you might want to pay attention to this 35 year old assistant general counsel that's in this in your client's company, because give them five years and they could be the GC. They could be the general counsel that's hiring us. And we need to figure out what messages resonate for that 35-year-old. And that's hard for them to wrap their minds around. But that's how nimble and how responsive we need to be. And, you know, we need to shift the way that corporate America goes. And, you know, we're from that's been around for decades and decades. And we're, we're fairly entrenched that way. But our, the companies and the leadership, of the, our clients are changing all the time, and they're pushing us and expecting law firms to, to change and to be responsive and to be more diverse and to have younger attorneys on their teams and more women on their teams uh, because corporate America is kind of way out in front of us on that front. So those are the changes that we're going to be really looking at you know, in the next decade or so.
0: I hesitate to ask this question because Emily said not to, my wife said, don't ask questions like this. So <laughs> you, you you can let me know if this is okay, because I'm, I'm certainly not going to ask, well, how do you balance a family and a career? Because no one ever asks a man that question, which is mm-hmm. ridiculous. They should. So I'm, I'm not asking anything like that. But I think of, as an outsider, the legal profession in a, in a firm that size to likely be quite male-dominated. And maybe I'm wrong on that. Uh, but I wonder what it's been like for you to be in that world as a woman.
1: Yes. And so I, I totally get the, the two levels <laughs> that you're working on there where you don't want to ask a stereo, stereotypical question. But on the other hand, like that's a reality of it for sure. So, yeah, after I got the job at uh, Thompson Coburn, a friend of mine, her mom was an attorney um, with a smaller firm, but like another corporate firm, and she took me to lunch you know in the first few months that I was practicing right. and she told me some stuff that really just resonated. I mean she kind of explained like how a law firm worked and how partnership works and the financials going on i mean it was it was really eye opening at an early level, so that was hugely helpful. But she also just looked at me and was like you don 't realize yet you don 't realize this yet, but you 're going to have a lot of influence there." And so something you should be thinking about is, you know, when you're looking for, you know, attorneys to talk to for a story or who should write this blog post or who should we feature in this, you know, little retrospective of a pro bono thing we're doing or something we're doing in the community. She said, you you have the opportunity to get women on that team and to get diverse people on that team and to be mindful of that." And I never, ever forgot that. It's just one of those (laughs) career, there's been a couple career things that people have told me that have just really stuck with me through the years. And so I I think about that and we're really focused on that as a firm and have been for a long time. So if I can just be one of those little voices that's saying, "Mm, let's take a look at this. Like, Is this really reflective of of our clients, of our legal community, of who we want to be? And, you know, it's, it's just nice to, to be that person to kind of speak up that way.
0: Yeah, you're, you're touching on really important thoughts of, about representation. And you mentioned it earlier when we were talking about the difference in, in our ages, where, you know, you grew up with a different experience of technology. And those differences kind of inform your view of technology and the world and how things work together than me. And that applies for other differences, as well. And I, it's worthwhile going back to the emotional intelligence piece to just be aware that those differences exist, that they're not the end all be all, but they it's important to realize that if you're in a place of privilege, you should acknowledge that privilege and realize that there's other experiences as well that don't match up with yours. So it's cool that you've been in that position and it sounds like have been able to influence some, some changes.
1: Yeah. And again, it's, it's just, it's just raising the question. Sometimes that's all that it takes. And again, I think, you know, even, you know, the sort of majority population, I think now they're receptive to it. I mean, they will listen, (laughs) you know, they're not going to shut you down. I think they realize the futility in that at this point, when you look at how diverse this next generation is coming up, like, you know, they are slow, (laughs) vastly very quickly moving into the minority themselves. I was just going to tell you the other little bit of career advice that kind of rocked my world early on in my career. (laughs) And again, this is very particular to me, but it's just something, again, that I think about all the time where um, a reporter friend of mine who had been at Missouri Lawyers Weekly with me, she moved into PR a few years ahead of me. So she went into like a really big PR agency like, you know, kind of a a major PR unit where you have to be a billion hours for a client and and keep track of your hours and and in a really high pressure situation. And I had lunch with her like soon after she had started and she was like, "Allison, you will not believe this, but most people can't write (laughs) like they just can't, (laughs) or they don't do it well. Or when you do it even a little bit, well, it just amazes them. They can't believe, you know, how well you've distilled information or come up with a headline. And I was like, really? Because as a reporter, that's what you're doing all the live long day. (laughs) And it's just rote for you to synthesize information or to come up with a catchy headline or to use a lot of, you know, cool verbs or adjectives to describe something. But in certain settings in the world, that is such a valued trait, (laughs) And I've certainly found that in my current position, too, even working with lawyers who themselves are fantastic writers. You know, the fact that I've earned their respect as a writer and, you know, an information gatherer. And so I just have never forgotten that. That just made me appreciate my skills that much more. And that can apply to anything. You know, you don't know how precious your skills are until you're in a situation where everyone is just marveling at them.
0: Well, and I think it gets into something that, Again, with, with the folks that I communicate with in the kind of gaming, hobby world, where there's this fear of missing out, this fear that, well, these other people are doing cool things and I'm not able to do them as well. And I think we discount the stuff that we bring to the table or you just take it for granted. Like, well, everyone can do this. like like you, It sounds like you thought at one point in time, well, everyone can write. And it's not the case. I think being able to acknowledge the the talents that you have and if you do want to try to turn them into something that's that's more marketable or where you're trying to build an audience rely on those and not worry so much about what other people are doing but just focus on the strengths that you have
1: yeah and and it's another thing i mean again you don't know what you're good at until you're thrust into a certain situation so you know, the, the broader you can make your experiences, whether professional or on a hobby side, you know, get with a totally different group of people. You know, for your next D anD D session or what have you. Like, you may realize something about yourself, or that this group may see something new you that you didn't know. And so, the only way to realize that is to get yourself out of your comfort zone and to try something different.
0: Well, and and maybe because you know, I realized the time, one of the questions that we were going back and forth about just you know come up with ideas on how to structure this this idea of do, do people know the most interesting things about themselves and maybe do they know their own talents and abilities but as, as a journalist and someone who's marketing hundreds of people what what have you seen or do you think people are pretty aware of what is the most interesting element of themselves or is it tend to be more of a blind spot
1: yeah it's it's interesting it's an interesting thing i mean as a reporter, I would have conversations with people, I would just start chatting with people at the courthouse or at a bar event or something. And just in drawing them out a tiny bit, they would just say something that would just like trigger something in my brain, like just this, this reporter's curiosity switch would just go, what? (laughs) And then I would have to ask a million questions about whatever it was they just told me. And I, I think you're right. I think people just don't they don't really, I I don't know if it's like a survival mechanism on some evolutionary level that whatever makes you different or unique, you need to just like gloss over so that you can, you know, fell the next deer to feed your family or something. But I don't know if it goes that primal. But, you know, as a reporter, that was the cool thing about my job. And I still do it on a lot of levels today, too, is just talking with people and and knowing what questions to ask and how to draw that out. And we've hit on this a little bit, but, you know, as a reporter, oftentimes you're reporting the who, what, where, when type of thing. You know, I did this or I won this case. It was on this date. This was the result. Blah, blah, blah. But the most interesting question of all was always the why You know, why did you even get into this area of law? You know, why are you a lawyer who flies stunt planes every spare minute that he has? And I got to ride with one lawyer in a stunt plane in Springfield, Missouri, and this guy had a lot of whys going on (laughs) in his work because he also like chased eclipses around the world, and he couldn't have a relationship (laughs) because he was traveling all over the world and. Those priorities. Are just, yes. I mean, those are cool priorities to have, if, you know, but on the other hand, he was sacrificing having a companion of some kind. But anyways, those are the weird things you get into just talking with someone. And I think about it with our lawyers, too, because on a lot of levels, we're selling them as people, you know, as counselors to a business. Or if you're going through a really terrible litigation, really major litigation for your company, I mean, you want to know the lawyer who's got your back and that and who's fighting for you on a level that, you know, you're going to grab a beer or you're on the same board together or, you know, your kids play ball together or something. And those are the human connections where you can really tell someone's story and kind of make that connection, make that bridge to possibly connect with a client or someone that you could help in a business sense. So I'm thinking about those, that story type stuff all the time.
0: And and so what's the most interesting element of of your story so far?
1: My personal
0: story? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm.
1: Well, on some level, I always think about this, that even just when I pulled those clips for you in preparation for this interview, I'm like, damn, I was a good writer. Like, <laughs> I missed that part of it. And it was like a little bit unrequited. Like I always told my mom growing up that I would write romance novels and make There's an still old- time. <laughs> there is still time. Is there time though? Like we're talking about the precious little time we have in our world. But, you know, I read like one of my favorite authors is Susan Orlean who, you know, she's the reporter who was at the center of adaptation. If you've seen that crazy Nicholas Cage Charlie Kaufman movie. Do you know that one?
0: I will say I don't think I've seen it, but I've heard of it.
1: Okay. It's amazing. It's Meryl Streep. It's Nicolas Cage. It's this like meta meta screwing with your head type movie. It's amazing. But it's based on this real life reporter named Susan Orlean. And she's famous for doing these journalism pieces where she just goes. So she gets just embedded with a subject or. Uh, a situation or something from history. And she just goes so deep and writes about it from an awesome level. She came out with a book this past year called the library book about this historic fire at the Los Angeles central library. And I love reading her books, but on some level I read them and I'm just, it makes me insane crazy because I'm like, I could have written this (laughs) and whether, I mean, you talk about the id DM, I mean, whether that's ego coming out, in a crazy way, or id, I don't exactly know the difference between the two, you'll have to tell me, Dr. Mallon. but on some level, maybe that is my story, that there's this unrequited writer just wanting to bust out of my chest or something.
0: I mean, you can do it. Just, <laughs> instead of scrolling through Facebook, just bang out a few paragraphs <laughs> each morning and you add up enough of those paragraphs and suddenly you got a book.
1: Oh, uh, now you're going to make me give up Instagram in the morning. Oh, I actually have to do something with that book. The
0: phone. worst. The worst. <laughs> I, yeah, no, for me, this... Uh, you know, it started as something that was an outlet, you know, because I I enjoy writing. I enjoy creating things and... I just write how I talk to myself. So it just sort of works for me that way. And it was nice to get some feedback. I kept writing more articles and, you know, some of the longer stuff I've written has seemed to impact people in a way that that's been, you know, it's been good to get that feedback. I've been writing less now with a child. Uh, There's just less free time, as, as you mentioned. But I think you mentioned you were, you know, writing, you know, coming up through journalism. I've been writing clinical reports just over and over and over again for my career. And it's always interesting of like, how do I say patient stated, but in a different way that doesn't exactly use those words
1: (laughs) when it's over and over and over again?
0: And how do you take, you know, whatever time you have with a person you're counseling and just turn that into a succinct, here's what happened, here's the here's kind of the core of the issues involved. And if I or another professional has to look at this in six weeks or six years, they can get a clear sense of what was going on. And I hadn't really thought about it before, but as you were talking about it, I think that helps to then take your own ideas and to turn them into something that other people can consume and understand, not to mention just going through school and getting, getting those skills. So it's interesting what we get passionate about and how we try to make that part of our lives, whether it's career or something other than our career. Yeah. Ideally they would overlap, but not always.
1: Yeah. And you are an amazing writer, Michael, you are really great on that front. And just, I know you've used writing as, as an outlet and a therapy. And you know, when you talk about the story of your life, I mean, you have shared those stories in an amazing way. And it's, it's inspiring for for how vulnerable and truth telling you've been to a, a really wide audience. I mean, to as wide an audience as anyone has, and you're right that those stories have really resonated. So, uh, thank you for sharing them and for you know making the time to to talk those stories out and to write them down.
0: And thanks for trying to to market.
1: Those. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, we we unsuccessfully pitched you for you and emily for a a podcast that i listened to called death sex money and so yeah it was me sort of like taking your very personal you know amazing hard story and like putting a little spin on it and trying to get this podcast to pick it up
0: just so that you can sell you sent us an email which was more or less like a pitch like hey i got this idea like what do you think i'm like uh (laughs) sure i guess go for
1: it see that's the thing i cannot like turn that off Right I mean when, when you he, when you hear a good story and you know how to market it or how you could possibly market it so
0: well Hi, if boy. folks are interested in your work or just want more information about the the firm that you work for um how, how can they find you on all the social medias
1: yeah well um if you're interested in finding more about Thompson Coburn, we're thompsoncoburn.com. And like I said, we're on this on all the social channels right now at Thompson Coburn in most places, I believe. And then um, uh, I'm pr- fairly active on LinkedIn. Again, it's, you know, a little bit of the the slightly more boring social channel, but I'm, I'm pretty busy there in terms of sharing articles I've written and seeing the projects I'm working on for the firm. I, I try to share those and kind of use it as kind of a portfolio site. And I'm very sadly not as active as I should be on Twitter, but I'm Alison Spence, one, number one, and uh, we'll hope to get more active on that front. I know that's maybe a good place for me to try out writing, right? Like start my novel there or something.
0: Well, thank you very much for the time. Thank you for also helping Emily at our wedding, keeping everyone organized (laughs) uh, in the right places.
1: As a personal attendant, and I I struck two to the, the massive binder that Emily gave me with the all instructions for all parties at the wedding
0: uh the women in the family are not to be trifled with and no no and in a good way like (laughs) it's um it's an impressive collection of folks there's no doubt
1: (laughs) of women in particular
0: uh the men too but sure uh, sure i i think just the background that, that the family has—it's a lot of very strong, very independent women, which is excellent.
1: Well, I hope more of them can come on as part of this Retka cousin sub series on, yeah, on the IDM.
0: I was telling Emily today as like, I was just going to have like a sub genre of the podcast where it's just like better know a Retka. <laughs> it's just,
1: it's I love go it. Through them. I loved yeah. Aaron's episode. Like I thought that was fantastic. So
0: yeah, he's he's a lot of fun. So. Well, I appreciate everyone listening. Definitely uh, follow Allison. I think uh, it sounds like you're going to try to maybe deliver some more nuggets on Twitter and other places going forward. And I appreciate all the advice about about marketing, about trying to get sticky with some of the content that all of us are trying to produce. Uh, so I will certainly take those uh, suggestions to heart.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's been great. Yeah, have a good night. Thanks. You too.